Hello, friends, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Very Worst Seminarian podcast. My name is McKaylin, and I'm currently a student at Candler School of Theology, and I'm in the latter half of my second year of my Master of Divinity degree. This season, we will be discussing what it means to live unhoused in the United States and what resources are available to our ruthless siblings as they navigate the complexities of the continuum of care. We will also discuss the policies both at the state level and at the federal level that may both positively and negatively affect our ruthless siblings. The goal of this season is twofold. We will work together to better conceptualize ruthlessness, and we will also work together to destigmatize ruthlessness in the United States. Now, this first episode is to help provide definitions for homelessness, the continuum of care, and as well as provide some initial viewpoints on what barriers exist for those who are living homeless in the United States when it comes to getting into supportive, temporary, and permanent housing. Also in this season, we will have the opportunity to listen to some of the leaders and the voices who are at the forefront of helping change policy to help and aid people who are living unhoused, as well as those working literally boots on the ground with those who are unhoused in the U.S. Two of those people that we will be interviewing is Senator Kim Jackson, as well as Jennifer Darcy, who is currently at the forefront of programs and initiatives and policy development for homelessness in Savannah, Georgia. So let's begin. So we first want to really define what homelessness is and HUD gives us four categories of homelessness in the United States. So category one, as according to HUD, is that somebody is literally homeless. So this means that this individual or family lacks a fixed, regular, adequate nighttime residence, meaning that they have a primary nighttime residence that is a public or private place not meant for human habitation, is living in a public or privately operated shelter designated to provide temporary living arrangements, including congregate shelters, transitional housing, and motels and hotels paid for by charitable organizations or by federal, state, and local government programs, or is exiting an institution where she or he has resided for 90 days or less and who resided in an emergency shelter or place not meant for human habitation immediately before entering that institution. The second category is an imminent risk of homelessness. So this is an individual or family who will imminently lose their primary nighttime residence provided that residence will be lost within 14 days of the day application for homelessness assistance. No subsequent residence has been identified and the the individual or family lacks the resources or support networks needed to obtain other permanent housing. The third category is homeless under federal statutes. So this includes people who are considered under the McKinney-Vento Act. And this really does concern youth who are currently homeless. So this third category says that unaccompanied youth under 25 years of age or families with children and youth who do not otherwise qualify as homeless under this definition, but who are defined as homeless under other listed federal statutes, such as the McKinney-Vento Act, 
have not had a lease, ownership, interest, or occupancy agreement in permanent housing during the 60 days prior to homeless assistance application, have experienced persistent instability as measured by two moves or more during the preceding 60 days, and we see this a lot when it comes to things like rent chasing, and can be expected to continue in such status for an extended period of time due to special needs or barriers. Now, category four is fleeing or attempted to flee domestic violence. So this is any individual or family who is fleeing or is attempting to flee domestic violence and has no other residence and lacks the resources or supportive networks to obtain other permanent housing. So those are the categories that HUD has given us in understanding some of the definitions of what homelessness is. And there are lots of different ways to be considered homeless in the United States as seen through these four categories. So the next thing that we want to look at is homelessness statistically throughout the United States. So we are going to look at the state of Georgia because that is the Georgia that I that is the state that I currently reside in. So these are all as of January 2020. The last time that a true point in time count was done in the state of Georgia, primarily because of COVID-19. And we know that these numbers probably didn't reflect the reality that homelessness has risen quite a bit within the last two years because of COVID and because of the havoc that it's wrought not only on people living in lower income categories, but also as well as those living in that low to median income category. So as of January 2020, Georgia estimated that there were 10,234 people experiencing homelessness on any given day. So if we were to kind of divide that up, basically 864 of those were family households. 730 64 veterans, 504 were unaccompanied young adults, and 1,374 individuals were experiencing chronic homelessness. However, this doesn't get really into the weeds of all of the categories that we that I just provided when it comes to defining homelessness. So when we look at things like the McKinney-Vento Act, we see that young adults in particular are considered to be homelessness homeless if they are for instance couch surfing or living in their cars or they are living in a single family unit with multiple families so that makes this number rise quite a bit so in the state of georgia it was estimated that 38,891 public school students were experiencing homelessness over the course of the 2018 to 2019 school year. Of that total, 624 students were unsheltered, 2,675 students were in shelters, 7,632 were in hotels and motels, and 27,942 were doubled up either in single family units and or they were considered to be couch surfing or sleeping in on somebody's couch. So, these numbers change things when we think about homelessness and our conception of homelessness, right? Because 
a lot of the students that I was referring to were what were considered to be unseen homeless. And so they are not necessarily people who are considered chronically homeless and living out in the streets or in tent cities, although some of them were as reflected by the number of unsheltered students, which again was 642 students. So that number is quite large when we think about it. And most likely within the past two years, it has risen because of the havoc that COVID-19 has wrought on not only the economy, but also on living situations of many people in the state of Georgia. So now looking at what chronic homelessness is, there's a bit of a difference in the definition of what chronic homelessness is as compared to things like sheltered or unsheltered homelessness. So the federal government, according to HUD, defines chronic homelessness which is just the homeless that we typically think of um, when we see people living in tent cities or on the street. And this is defined as a person who is either one, an accompanied homeless individual with a disabling condition who has been continuously homeless for a year or more, or two, an unaccompanied individual with a disabling condition who has at least had four episodes of homelessness within the past three years. So, what is meant by the homeless definition of chronically homelessness is that HUD defines this term as homelessness as a person sleeping in a place not meant for human habitation or living in a homeless emergency shelter. So, now that we've discussed some of the definitions and I've provided some of the statistics for homelessness in the state of Georgia in particular, as well as in the United States, I want to talk about some of the barriers that exist to people who are currently trying to find things like supportive housing and or permanent housing. So first, what are the housing barriers? And this is considered to be a low to moderate housing barrier to people trying to get into housing when it comes to thinking about the continuum of care and those organizations that are operating to help people within the continuum of care get into supportive and permanent housing. So the first thing and and I think one of the most telling signs of a barrier is that this person and or family has no rental history. So that means that they either A, haven't rented a home before or they were living homeless for an extended amount of time and therefore they have no rental history to speak of. And this can be problematic in a lot of ways because when somebody is first renting an apartment or even trying to buy a home, it can be difficult to do an application, for instance, or to get a home without rental history. Second, they have poor rental history. And I think that this can pose an even bigger problem and a, and a larger barrier to people who are trying to get into permanent or supportive housing. So poor rental history can be evictions and or renter utility areas, which basically means that they either A, were not paying their rent on time or were unable to pay their rent on time, of course, and then also they were they may have not paid their power bill or they may have not paid their water bill 
And we saw that a lot with COVID-19, um, people who were unable to afford their water and utility bills, as well as rent. Third, insufficient savings. Four, poor credit history. And I want to go back to the insufficient savings because um, as somebody who has had to rent apartments a couple times over because of moving to go to school, my husband and I often think about, well, we need to have about three times the amount of what the rent is going to be each month in order for them to approve us for an apartment. And that's the case for most housing units in the state of Georgia and in the broader U.S. Um, it's more of a contingency for the apartment uh, complex. And so it can be really difficult for a family who is going from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck um, or who is currently living on housing trying to get into supportive housing or permanent housing or, tempor or even temporary housing. And they don't necessarily have the ability to save three times the amount of, let's say, a $900 to $1,000 apartment because the going rate, particularly in the city of Atlanta for apartments, is above $1,500. And that's for a smaller studio or one bedroom apartment. That's not even going into larger apartments meant for larger families. So huge barrier is going to be insufficient savings uh, within a banking account. That, and we won't necessarily, this is something we'll discuss later on in the podcast, but also if you don't have a bank account, for instance, that can also pose to be a barrier to getting into housing. So uh, another one of the barriers is considered to be a low barrier, according to HUD, for people to get into housing is sporadic employment history. Whenever you are going in to buy a home, um, and or rent an apartment, typically you're going to have to provide a list of the places that you've been employed for the last mm, 10 years or so. And they're looking to see whether or not you have had stable employment during that entire time. And what we see with people who are living unhoused or living in unstable housing is that their employment history may not be stable and it may be sporadic. Um, and that ha this has a lot to do with the fact that they may have had to move multiple times chasing rent in order just to afford to live in a home and or they're living chronically homeless and it can be difficult to hold down a job when you don't have a home. You don't have um, a base camp to come back to, so to speak. And another barrier that we see is that the person or the family, there are no, they do not have a high school diploma or a GED. Um, another barrier that is considered to be a low to mid barrier is recent or current abuse and or battering. So that would be somebody who's fleeing domestic violence housing situation um, and they are struggling to find sufficient housing for themselves. Um, and next we have a head of household that is under the age of 18 years old because if you're under the age of 18, you cannot rent an apartment um, in the state of Georgia. So that can be very difficult. And also if you are a large family and you're trying to rent an apartment or buy a house, it can be difficult because as I've said before, 
the going rate for apartments in Atlanta, and this is a one-bedroom apartment or a studio, is about $1,500 a month. Um, and so when we think about, even with vouchers, families trying to find larger apartments, this can be a real struggle because of the price of rent and or the current housing market. Lastly, if somebody has a criminal background and this is considered to be a low or moderate barrier to housing, um, and we see this particularly when it comes to government subsidized housing, because if you have um, a felony or any drug charges, you will not be considered for government subsidized housing. So the next thing that we look at is are high barriers to supportive housing and permanent and more temporary housing. So one of the high barriers that we see is that the family has no income. And of course, this is considered to be an obvious barrier to housing, um, but it also poses a barrier because they also may not have a bank account or anything like that. So that can be huge when trying to get people into supportive temporary or permanent housing. Second, they have a recent history of substance abuse or actively using drugs or alcohol. And this can pose not only a barrier to finding housing, but it can also pose a barrier to, again, somebody having um, a stable employment history and or having stable um, rent history. Also, serious health problems or conditions, including mental health. We know that there are quite a few people um, who live homeless or unhoused in the United States and more on a micro level in the state of Georgia who struggle with mental health illnesses and oftentimes they are undiagnosed and that mental health illness may have led to them being homeless or their mental illness was caused by living homeless and the stress that that can cause on the human psyche. And lastly, we also think of the fact that even some of the barriers that I mentioned before, which HUD considers to be low to mid barriers, can be in some instances high barriers when combined with some of the other things that I've mentioned before within kind of this high level barrier category. So now that we've got some of the definitions as well as some of the barriers to housing, I also want to quickly discuss some of the general barriers for people who are living unhoused, getting into either shelters, or supportive housing, permanent housing, and what that looks like to truly live on the streets here in the United States. So when we think about homelessness in the United States, I think we have this general idea of somebody who's living chronically homeless. Um, but the reality is a lot of people living unhoused in the United States are unseen homeless. They're not necessarily the people that we're seeing living on the streets um, or who are standing on the corner with cardboard boxes cut out and um, asking for money. Um, oftentimes they can be the college student who is living in their car or it is 
the family that is living with multiple families in a single family household, right? So I think that that we have to start thinking about homelessness in a different way. But when we look at specifically things like chronic homelessness, right? I think some of the barriers that truly exist for people, one is having access to identification. And this is a huge barrier to not only housing, but to getting a bank account, for instance, um, or getting health services or medication, right? And of course, there are organizations that help people who do not have IDs or even social security numbers um, to get the services that they truly need. But when we think about somebody not having an idea, ID and thinking that it's easy for them to get it, it, it's really not that simple. So for instance, I remember going to go get my license. Um, so this would be my driving permit for when I was 15. Feels like forever ago. But I remember how difficult it was to get your permit. You had to provide your birth certificate, your social security number. I mean, you really had to prove you were who you said you were, as well as bills, for instance, that you had to show that you actually lived at the residence that you said you did. And then in order to get your license, you had to provide some of the same documentation. And so if you're living, somebody who's lived chronically homeless for an extended amount period of time, and let's say either A, you never had an ID to begin with, um, or your driver's license got suspended and you're living homeless, and so you don't have a place of residence, you don't know your social security number, and you do not have access to your birth certificate, because it can also be extremely complex to get your birth certificate if you are living homeless in another part of the state or even in another state completely from where you were born, right? So there are so many barriers that we don't necessarily see um, as people who, myself, living so privileged that it was pretty easy um, to get all the documentation that I needed in order to get something like an ID. Um, But... I mean, in the state of in in the United States, it's it's just not that easy for people who are living unhoused um, and do not necessarily have the resources in their toolbox um, to get things like their ID. And of course, we can talk. Some of the other barriers that we see are access to showering facilities. So, you know, there, I I know that for for instance, like. Planet Fitness and a couple other fitness centers have showers in them. And after talking to some people who have lived homeless in Atlanta for quite a bit, they've managed to make sure that they save up enough money to pay like $10 a month for the gym just so that they can have access to a shower, right? But this isn't necessarily the case for everybody living homeless in the United States. And If there's not a gym or a shower space that's free nearby, such as things like campgrounds, um, that poses a barrier to even just have being able to be clean, right? And then we think about things like hygiene products and feminine products. And while a lot of 
shelters and nonprofits try to help people have access to those things, it still poses a barrier to people who are living chronically unhoused. And then, of course, access to things like clean water and proper nutrition is a huge barrier to people who are living unhoused in the United States. Um, and that's not even talking about the food deserts that exist in vast areas, even in places like urban areas like the city of Atlanta. So these are just some of the things that while we are discussing um, the unhoused community and people who are living unhoused, we really need to keep them at the back of our minds. Um, I think that there's a lot of judgment that exists towards the unhoused community. Um, and something that I've learned while being in seminary, um, even though I refer to myself as the very worst seminarian, because I'm not very good at seminary, um, is that as people who love God, as people who are called to love their neighbor, right? That's one of the greatest commandments is to love our neighbor. We are called with to have a sense of radical compassion for every single human and living thing on earth. We are called to a sense of radical love and radical empathy and radical justice, quite frankly. And when we allow for people to continue to live their lives without proper habitation, without proper shelter, we are not necessarily extending that sense of radical neighbor, radical love to people who are called to love, right? Because that's ultimately what God calls us to do. God's calling us to create this beloved community. And so when we think about homelessness, in the United States and in the in the broader global spectrum, right? We must come back to that sense of compassion for our fellow brothers and sisters. Um, and I think that maybe from what I've seen, COVID might, the one thing COVID might have done is brought back that sense in a lot of communities. Um, I know that it's something that at Candler we have wrestled with continuously in thinking and trying to be creative in how the church can begin to be a part of this process as well, because we know that the church has a large amount of resources at its fingertips that can really begin to end homelessness in the United States. And so we'll also, in this podcast, be discussing with pastors um, who are involved in trying to alleviate the pressure on the unhoused community and help them get into supportive housing and help them have access to the resources that they desperately need. And this includes mental health counseling and addiction counseling and getting people the medications they need and getting people the physical health aid that they need. And so I just want to thank you for listening in. I truly hope that you continue to listen because I'm so excited 
to have these conversations with people who are much more knowledgeable than I am when it comes to what we can do to help the unhoused community. And I hope that this podcast serves as being both informative, but also ignites a passion and know-how to help the unhoused community throughout the United States and specifically in the state of Georgia. I hope you all have a wonderful day or night or morning, whatever time it is you're listening to this podcast. And I can't wait for you to listen in and tune in next week. We'll be interviewing Jennifer Darcy, who just happens to be my mom and the woman who ignited my passion in nonprofit, but more specifically um, in trying to find creative and inventive ways to aid the unhoused community in getting them into permanent and supportive housing. So we will see you next week or you'll listen to us next week, hopefully. Um, And thank you for listening to the Very Worst Seminarian Podcast.